Oh, thank you for being here tonight. And uh, as we begin, let's just pause and uh, take a deep breath and let's pray for our community. You've been watching the news and we had another shooting in a school and it's just, uh, let's pray for those students and the teachers and parents and, oh, it's, it's a tough time. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that we are not alone and we are not without hope. And our hearts go out as we hear of yet another shooting, another death, another injury, another loss, more pain, more questions. So we pray for this school. We pray for the students who are there and wondering what happens next week. We pray for the teachers who are investing their lives there, the administrators and staff who are loving and caring and holding it together. May you give them strength and vision. May you give them safety. May you give our community leaders and police officers wisdom and insight. We want our city to be your city. We want our children to be your children. We, we want your will to be done. We want love to be felt. We want hope to be experienced and futures to be changed. And so we end this prayer by offering ourselves to you, however you want to use us. We are ready because of Christ. Amen. Well, welcome back to our ninth session in our study of Judges, uh, colorful characters. Boy, isn't that quite a statement. These are colorful, colorful characters. And tonight we go to one that may be the best known from the book of Judges. We've had a couple like, oh, I might have a vague memory of this. This is a bit shocking and this is disturbing. Uh, this one, it's interesting. We've been moving up and, you know, we've had a few that are short, not taking much space. This one is big this one this is about Samson and and it's interesting how this story just takes up so much space and that's just one thing to watch as you're reading scripture remember they're, they're writing by hand and so even for example Mark's gospel which is the shortest of our gospels when you when you're moving in Mark's gospel and, and things are clipping along and Mark stops and kind of gives you a long story you should go, wait a minute, there's something here. Mark is taking the time. This is different from the other stories. This one is longer. It's got more details. Mark's wanting us to pay attention here. I think the same thing is happening here with Judges. This story is just like the breaks go on and it's expanded and the characters are developed. And, and it is a great story and a disturbing story. There, we're in that story. There's a lot about uh, about human nature and human character and fear and well all weaknesses all those kinds of things and, and we all know overachievers um, interesting heads that just came up yeah we may be overachievers ourselves uh, and we do love underdogs we, we all know that student there are several teachers in the room that student that just not 
just studied, 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 not the honor student, didn't come easy, and they just kept grinding away, and they graduated with the same diploma as every other student did. And we know that athlete, a little undersized, had to work harder than all the, but stayed there, stayed there, and made those plays that made a difference. Well, we see the same thing when we get into the workforce. The, we see that individual, it wasn't that elite hire, it wasn't that all-star, but we see that person who just kind of digs in, and they're committed, and they work hard and work hard and work hard and before you know it as you see through the years they just kind of rise through management levels and it's like oh yeah we do love an underdog Samson is not an underdog not nothing about this story is underdog from the very beginning now it is, it is a long long story and so we're just going to look at two passages the first one not too long and then the second one is is a bit longer so let's take a look first of all at Judges chapter 13, the beginning of this story. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. I think if I was the writer of Judges, I would say the Israelites again, 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 did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And we joke about it and it occurs so often, we laugh about it and we roll our eyes. And then I think, uh-oh, wait a minute. What about me? Yeah. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord, here's that phrase again, gave them into the hand of the Philistines. And now look at this. 40 years. And there's no statement here that they cried out for help. It's one of the things that's different. There's no statement that they repented. There's no, it's just they did it again. And the Lord handed them over, and now 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. His wife was barren, having borne no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Although you are barren, having borne no children, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now be careful not to drink wine or strong drink or to eat anything unclean, for you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor is to come on his head. I need, I need tray back. No razor is to come on his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from birth. It is he who shall begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And I want to add, even though you didn't ask for it, even though you didn't repent, isn't this interesting, God going to work for the people again? Then the woman, I thought you were raising your hand. I'm sorry. That's all right, yeah. Then I thought, I thought we had a question in the room. Then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me, and his appearance was like that of an angel of God, most awe-inspiring. I did not ask him where he came from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, you shall conceive and bear a son, so then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from birth to the day of his death. And so we have the beginning of this incredible story about Samson. That Samson is created for a purpose. Before he is even born, he's going to be given these gifts that are now being talked about that are going to defy convention, that are in some way going to set him apart. And here's this context. Israel laps again into this distraction and weakness. They don't even cry out for help. And God is going to send this child, yet unnamed, who will be the one who will deliver them. 
And Samson's parents have a role in this, not knowing what the future is going to be, but there is a role in how they're going to raise this child, treat this child, train this child. And we have notions, kind of impressions or expectations of what this Samson looks like. Everyone in here has read this story before. Everyone in here has used this story in Sunday school or vacation Bible school. Everyone in here has heard a sermon on this or seen a cartoon about this or flannel graph about this. And Samson is strong, you know, muscles rippling, never quite part of the story. Strong, yes, but there's no description of that other than his hair. We just have this image of this extraordinary person, certainly not an underdog. In spite of all of this, we will also learn that Samson is incredibly, incredibly vulnerable. Uh, the writer of our study guide told a very interesting, he told it as if this is a legend everyone has heard, and I've never heard this story before. He said the story, uh, uh, the story goes like this, that there was a man who was out camping in the wilderness out west. And uh, every evening after he comes in from hiking, he has his campground set up, he has a fire going, and he's going to cook his dinner over the fire. And it's just gotten dark, and he hears this incredible noise, this rustling in the bushes and the, and the edge of the forest. And suddenly there's this incredible noise. And coming out of the woods, riding towards him, is this enormously large muscled man with uh, a, a huge bushy beard, and he's riding on a bear. And he has a huge rattlesnake in his right hand. And as he comes out of the forest, he, he reaches down and he bites the head off the rattlesnake and throws it into the bush. And he hops off of the bear and he sits down beside the fireplace and he throws back a huge cup of scalding hot coffee as if it's nothing and, and, and fix a, a, a huge plate of food and just wolfs it down. And then he says to the man that's there, and he uses this, this Western language, partner, I wish I could stay and talk a while, but there's a really bad dude coming after me and I have to go. <laughs> like, oh no, yeah. And, and the idea he's using this to say, Samson is described as this incredibly powerful person. We don't go far in the story until we see the fear that the Philistines have of him. We have this incredible picture of him as someone who is fearless. Uh, we, we begin to get this image of him as being very clever. He likes to use riddles. Um, and there's a, there's, there's a bad dude coming still. And, and there, there's a bad dude who's coming after Samson, chasing him. We have an impression that the people of Israel have yielded to their passions and the Philistines have developed basic, uh, well, the text makes clear, the, the Philistines have uh, blacksmithing skills, they have iron tools, and the people of Israel are so oppressed and so weak that they depend on the Philistines for basic goods and services. The Philistines have forbidden them to make those kinds of weapons or to have them and they are in such a weak position, they simply comply. And then comes Samson. And he is a threat. Uh, they have plans to capture him, to control him. He outsmarts them. 
uh, to use a good King James Version language, he smites them. He defeats them. It, it isn't difficult, and it's, and it's event after event and plan after plan, and none of it works in the favor of them, and you have this feeling something is coming in the story. I wish there's a way we could wipe our memory of what we know and go back and read it with that anticipation of, wait, what's going to happen? Wait, what's, how's this story going to be different from the other stories that we have in Judges? This is longer. The characters are developed. We know more about their families more about what they're thinking so we're going to jump ahead to Judges chapter 16 uh, this is a little bit longer passage that's going to end up take us to the end of the story and then we'll back up and talk a little bit about it after this uh, Samson fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah the lords of the Philistines came to her and said to her coax him Find out what makes his strength so great and how we may overpower him so that we may bind him in order to subdue him and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver, which sounds like a lot. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me what makes your strength so great and how you could be bound so that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that are not dried out, then I shall become weak and be like anyone else. Then the lords of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not dried out, and she bound him with them. While men were lying in wait in an inner chamber, she cried to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a strand of fiber snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Ah, what a mystery. Then Delilah said to Samson, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you could be bound. And he said to her, if they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like anyone else. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them. And said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. The men lying in wait were in an inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Ah. Then Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you could be bound. He said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and make it tight with the pen, then I shall become weak and be like anyone else. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web and made them tight with the pen. Then she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep, pulled away the pen, the loom, and the web. And then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me. You have mocked me three times now and have not told me what makes your strength so great. Finally, after she had nagged him with her words day after day and pestered him, he was tired to death. I <laughs> know it's, it's bad. So he told her his whole secret and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, then my strength would leave me. I would become weak and be like anyone else. And at this part of the story, even those who have heard it, we still go back to some of those questions like, is it really the hair? I mean, is that, is that really the issue? Is it, is it the vow? Is it the faithfulness? 
Is, you know, what's, what's really behind this commitment that the parents made and kept through all these years? And now we see Samson finally revealing this. When Delilah realized that he had told her his whole secret, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, This time come up, for he has told his whole secret to me. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in all their hands. So, and by the way, that's interesting language. Let me back up. Um, when Delilah realized that he had told her his whole secret, what was it that gave it away? What, who's playing with whom here? It's always been the question in the story. How much is she playing with him and with the lords? And how much is he, I mean, we know he's not telling her the truth. How much does she know all along? This isn't going to work. This, well, if seven bowstrings didn't work, why in the world would seven new ropes work? And if seven new ropes work, how's weaving his hair? Not, how's that going to work? But something's different this time. She even says to them, this time come up. Not just the men, the Lord. This time come up. He has told us so secret to me. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She let him fall asleep on her lap, and she called man and had him shave off the seven locks of the head of his head, which I must that is a, what is one deep sleep, you know, is it what's go, yeah, what's what's induced this yeah, how much, what has he had? Yeah. Anyway, he began to weaken and his strength left him. And we are left with a mystery and a riddle. How is this all tied into the vow? How is this tied into how the parents raised him? How is this tied? How much of his understanding is this goes back to this commitment that he has to be an instrument of God? Hmm. He began to weaken and his strength left him. Then she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. When he awoke from his sleep, he thought, I'll go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. So the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes. They brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. But there's always that great line. It appears so often in Scripture, and it's just always this great change in the narratives. We see it, for example, in the book of Acts all the time. But... Hmm. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. And the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to their god, Dagon, and to rejoice, for they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. When the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson and let him entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. Hmm. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the attendant who held him by the hand, let me fill the pillars on which the house rests so that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson performed. Then Samson called to the Lord. I haven't heard that in a while. Lord God, Remember me and strengthen me only this once. Only this once, O God, so that with this one act of revenge I may pay back the Philistines for my two eyes. 
And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Then Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. He strained with all his might, and the house fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So those who killed at his death were more than those he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of his father Manoah. He had judged Israel 20 years. Our first time frame that we've had since that original one telling us how long he's been doing this. It turns out Delilah was the bad dude chasing Samson. And uh, we're all become aware of strong Samson's weaknesses. He toys with her using riddles as he has already done multiple times. If you go back and read between chapters 14, read the rest of 14 and 15 leading up to 16 and you'll see how he loves using riddles and how he has been toying with the Philistines all along. She gets around the riddles and uses her charm and her intellect melting his defenses. This afternoon, uh, I happened to look to my right as I'm sitting there, it was like, oh, I forgot I had this book here. This is it's by Frederick Beekner. It's called Peculiar Treasures, A Biblical Who's Who. And, and some of them are a couple pages long. Some of them are just a paragraph or two. And it's uh, Beekner's typical, very insightful way of reading not just the biblical story. He likes to read some details into the story and extrapolate some details out of the story as well. And I thought, oh, I don't remember what he has to say about Samson. And I looked up Samson, and it said, see Delilah. He doesn't really have anything about Samson. He has Delilah. And he has kind of an interesting take on, on this. Let me read this with you. Delilah. She knew from the start that all she had to do to ruin Samson was cut off his gorgeous mop which isn't really what the text says, and he's got my attention now. Like, where's he going with this? It wasn't for nothing that she'd lain in bed watching him brush it in the mirror like a girl, the self-conscious way he tossed it out of his eyes on the dance floor, the silk bandana he tied it back with when he was gunning for Philistines. It was only to give them a few more days together that she pretended to swallow his clumsy, fib, his, his clumsy fibs about how the way to get the better of him was with new ropes, and bowstrings and so on. But Philistine headquarters got tough with her finally, so one night when he was asleep and with his head in her lap, she slipped out his scissors, and by the time she was through with them, he looked like Mr. Clean. Even the Philistine goon squad had some qualms about jumping a man who was crying like a baby when they came in to get him. And after the look she gave him, excuse me, and after the look she saw him give his reflection in the dresser mirror, as they dragged him out, she had the feeling that it was almost a relief to him when they put out his eyes. Can I read that last line again? Hmm. Even the Philistine goon squad had some qualms about jumping a man who was crying like a baby when they came in to get him. And after the look, she saw him give his reflection in the dresser mirror as they dragged him out. She had the feeling that it was almost a relief to him when they put out his eyes. 
and I've, I've been thinking about that, and I think what, I mean, I don't know Beekner, I think what he's trying to get at is somewhere along the way, he realizes the Lord has left him. Somewhere along the way, he realizes what has made him him isn't his strength, it was his specialness. It, it was uh, his inten- God's intentions for him. It was the commitment that his parents made how he was going to be raised, what would or would not happen to him, God's intentions from him, for him to be the one who would deliver his people, and now he has gotten to himself because the one person stronger than Samson was Samson himself. He could not control himself. His feats of strength were often motivated by bitterness and anger and revenge, not just the justice that God was seeking or leading the people back to Yahweh himself. The author of the study guide tells a story about a dear friend of his and his group of friends from his high school and that there was one friend in particular who was incredibly bright and incredibly gifted and had this incredible promise and along the way also discovered he had a huge side of his life that we would identify as addiction, both to drugs and alcohol. And that instead of becoming this person of great promise, it was a person of great trauma and pain and in and out of hospitals and in and out of treatment facilities and in and out of trouble and in and out of jobs and in and out of marriages, all of those kinds of things, until finally at 46, he is in a hospital in a coma, 18 days in a coma. And he said that he reconnected with his will, miraculously surviving and coming out. The, pa- the doctors are bringing in the coma and talking about end-of-life steps to take when he actually does recover. And he said that he reconnected with his will to live while he was in that coma, and it was when he woke up that he realized his need for God. And so he becomes the classic wounded healer. Some of you know the name Henry Nowen. He becomes that classic wounded healing, helping others to recover, mentoring a church leader, And we watch this kind of stuff unfold uh, and wondering where it's going. Melissa and I were talking this last week, listening to a couple of news stories about people who are famous and we and us watching it normal people in life and thinking they have ever they have fame, they have fortune, they have incredible gifts and incredible opportunity and success, whether it's in the entertainment industry or or our athletic life and and then and they can't handle it they, there's something missing they're they're not happy they're they're needing assurance they're needing affirmation they're needing love and it's just this tr- terrible tragedy of of going from abuse and and um, addiction and loss and then tragic early death and you read the story and you go my goodness what what else does he need? Um, God selected and gifted Samson to make a difference in the lives of beaten up, pushed about people. And in the end, he fails. In the end, he comes back to God 
And, and even that, in the end, leaves a bad taste in our mouths on this side of the resurrection as we read the end of this story that clearly in the book of Judges is, is highlighting, wait a minute, this guy has been in battle with the Philistines all his life, and now just mark this down, in his death, he, he kills more of them in his death than he did throughout his lifetime battling them. And, and as we've said before, you have to let them be the people they are in the time period they are, and in the battles that they are in, they are not 21st century Christians. Christians on this side we're reading that and and that's meant to highlight wait a minute he does turn back to God wait a minute he does recognize in the end there's something about the significance of his hair growing that becomes uh, a symbol of his recommitment to the vow that he has taken and remembering in the end wait a minute I'm here as a deliverer for these people and what they have been experiencing tragic but true and I'm asking kind, these kinds of questions. Um, so so what, is, what does your faith story look like? When you see this long story of Samson and this incredible intentionality that begins before he is even born, an angel of the Lord appearing to a woman who doesn't think she will ever have a child, which reminds you of John the Baptist, which reminds you of Jesus. I mean, I, those are the kind of the expectations. When you read those stories in the Gospels, you're supposed to be thinking about these stories, Abraham, Sarah, Samson's parents. I mean, all of those are connected in how those narratives are tied together. Well, what does my faith story look like? Um, where am I in understanding that intentionality from God, discovering that purpose for me in God's kingdom. Are you serving God's purposes intentionally, on purpose? Is it just as it accidentally happens, uh, if it's convenient to me? Uh, or is it when I'm getting up in the morning, along with everything else, I pause just long enough. It doesn't have to be a long time. God, what do you have? What do you have for me today? What is it you would like for me to do today? Who are you bringing into my life today? I, I talked to a couple, um, or, well, half the couple this afternoon, and uh, they're getting ready to go on this vacation. And, and one of the reasons they're excited about where they're going is that every time they go, there's always someone they get to share the gospel with. There's just the history of when we go there, something happens and God brings people into our lives and we get to share the gospel with them. And it's pretty easy to get caught up in our own lives, in our own legitimate pain, legitimate trouble, legitimate struggles, that we forget how God may want to be using us. Are you voluntarily putting the gifts God has given you to use in the task you were made for? And somewhere underneath this is God wants to bless these people who have turned their backs on God. And even after 40 years, we don't see in this part of the story a recognition, wait a minute, we've made some bad choices. Maybe that has something to do with what's happening to us now. Wait, maybe God's trying to get our, and yet God is still working on their behalf. There's something revealed about God's grace and God's love and God's purposes. So along the way, as you're struggling with the story of, uh, of Samson or, or, or celebrating the story, but as we struggle with how it ends, even that, that bad taste in her mouth with, with the tragedy of his life, how do I turn part of that around and go, wait a minute, 
what about my intentions today? Um, whether you're still working or retired, I want to introduce a word to you. So I'm going to go back to Frederick Wigner, and he has one of the best descriptions of vocation, which is not about career. He uses it in a very different way. So he writes, vocation comes from the Latin word vocara, to call. And it means the work a person is called to by God. Samson being called to be the person who will stand up for these people who are now in trouble. There are all different kinds of voices calling you to all different kinds of work. And the problem is to find out which is the voice of God rather than of society, say, or the superego or self-interest. By and large, a good rule for finding out is this. The kind of work God usually calls you to is the kind of work, A, that you need to do, and B, that the world needs to have done. Now, before I show you the next slide, just kind of digest that. He is saying, at the bottom line, the work God's going to call you to, the vocation, the calling that you have, whether it's how you earn your money or, or pay the bills or something you do for fun, there are two qualifications for that. It's something you want to do. It's something you need to do. It, it's part of who you are. And B, by the way, the world needs to have it done. It's going to make a difference among the people God has created and the intentions God has for those people. Then he goes a bit further. If you really get a kick out of your work, you've presumably met requirement A, the work you need to do. But if your work is writing cigarette ads, the chances are you miss requirement B. On the other hand, if your work is being a doctor in a leper colony, you probably met requirement B. But if most of the time you're bored and depressed by it, the chances are you've not only bypassed A, but probably aren't helping your patients much either. Neither the hair shirt nor the soft birth will do. Here's the line. The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. you might end up spending 25 years in prison. When did you realize you were going to do that, Joe? It, it was not a career goal for you, was it? It was not a career intention. Okay. I, did, I didn't... So for those who uh, may be watching online, this Joe Crichton who worked as a prison, uh, prison chaplain for 20, 25 years, for 25 years, and uh, he said he did not want to do it, which means it was not meeting requirement A at the beginning, uh, and he did everything but insult the people who were interviewing him, and yet they hired him anyway. How about that? Yes, why do you think you 
Okay, before you, I want to set that up for people listening at home before you give us the punchline. So six months later, the warden comes to you and says, do you know why we hired you? And you said, yes, but do you know why you hired me? So that's classic Joe, by the way. Yeah, all right, so give us the rest of it. And he said, you're the only one that complimented us. You're the only one who complimented us. I didn't compliment them. (laughs) But you didn't compliment them. So, I mean, that's just confirmation right there. And from then on, uh, you know, it just, it just happened. <laughs> I had to be there. Did I like it? I loved it, but I didn't like it. You loved it, but you didn't like it. Hmm. Did you feel like you were where you were supposed to be? Okay. I find there's, there's uh, something in this story of Samson as we turn the story and go, turn it back on ourselves and go, wait a minute, what about calling and giftedness in place of need? I find something assuring there that God trusts. I, I don't know why God wants to collaborate with us. I don't know why God just doesn't make it happen. And God just wants us to be a part of that process. And God has this incredible trust in every one of you that we can do this together i just need you to trust me and take some chances and go do a job for 25 years you didn't want to do and change some lives let's pray so lord i pray on behalf of all of us and say we are sorry for when we have gotten in your way when our own weaknesses have stopped us from following you, being obedient to you, and helping those who you have sent us to. Forgive us, we pray. It's not that we don't want to. It's that we don't think we can or should or have the power or the wisdom or have the right things to say or know the right things to do. So help us to trust you more. May our strength flow from you. In Christ's name, amen.